Today we have Bikran Sandhu on the show. Bikran is the CFO, COO, and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity, a company that is making waves in the multifamily real estate market. With over $1.5 billion of assets under management and a portfolio that includes over 6,500 units and 30-plus properties, Bikran brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to our conversation today. A man of many talents, he excels in underwriting, transaction management, asset management, investor relations, and much more. So stay tuned as we dive deep into the world of multifamily investing with Bikran Sandhu. I'm Darren Batchelder, an ex-corporate guy turned business owner and real estate investor. Have you ever wondered, how are you going to get from where you are today to where you want to be with your retirement investments? We discovered a better way, and we can help you get there. We have a four-step capital preservation and wealth building plan. Imagine having the financial freedom and time freedom to do what you want, when you want, and with who you want. A better way to preserve your capital, a better way to build your wealth, and a better way to save taxes. If you are a C-level executive or other high net worth individual and you want to find out how, then get started by scheduling your discovery call today at darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Bikran Sandhu. Bikran, appreciate you coming on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me, Darren. Appreciate you guys, man. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. Uh, myself, Bikran, and his two business partners, uh, Zach and Robert, uh, all four of us were part of the same multifamily mentorship group. We, we met probably about five years ago. And um, I've actually invested passively in a couple of their deals in Phoenix. And uh, we recently started to partner on some deals in Dallas together. And um, so I really like these guys. I think that they've got a great company. They've got great momentum. And I'm interested to hear, um, you know, what they've got going on. So with that, uh, Bikran, can you share a little bit with the listeners in terms of, you know, how many properties, how many units, uh, how you guys have grown through the past few years? Yeah, of course. No, thanks. Uh, thanks again, Darren, for having me on here. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, for those of you who don't know, I am a CFO and co-founder at Rise 48 Equity. Um, I, uh, I essentially co-founded the company with, with Zach Haptestall and Robert Shevchik, my, my two co-partners in, in, uh, in multifamily investing. So, uh, you know, through today, um, we started in 2019 and through today, we have 43 assets under management that we've acquired as uh, general partners in the deals. Um, all of them were the main partners, you know, in, in, in those deals. And I have personally invested passively in two additional deals, one in Oklahoma and one in uh, Texas. Um, but yeah, so for my personal balance sheet, I've invested in 45 deals in total over the past five years. 
That's pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I get some people that are like, yeah, I'm invested in five deals or 10 deals. And, you know, even when it gets to like 20, it's like, that's a lot of deals to be invested in. But to be in, in 45 deals is pretty crazy. So the other thing that's crazy is, is the assets under management. So when you say 43 yep. assets, um, yep. you know, you guys have gone full cycle on, on like, I think 10. 11. Or, um, 11. Yep, 11. Yep. Um, yep. But you guys have a crazy amount of assets under management. Yeah. No, we've, uh, so total number of units we've acquired is just over 7,600 units. Um, I think the total purchase price has been around 1.95 billion. Uh, yeah. So it's been, it's been a fortunate and, and, and nice ride. And uh, right now we have, uh, we've, we've bought 43, we've sold 11. So we have 32 assets under management, 29 in Phoenix and uh, four in Dallas. And we're continuing to expand in Dallas for, uh, for the foreseeable future to kind of build out the market out there. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a good ride and, uh, you know, we've kind of built a company out of this. So it's, it's been very helpful having our, you know, employees kind of help leverage, leverage their um, skill sets to kind of help expand this uh, company even further. Well, I think that you guys have done a lot of great things. Um, yeah, I think you've done a great job with branding. I think you've done a great job with process management. I think you've done a great job with, with um, you know, having different verticals within, within the company. Um, yeah. So I guess first talk about you started in Phoenix, and I, and I believe you grew to be either the largest buyer in Phoenix or one of the largest buyers in Phoenix. So maybe talk about that. And then you recently came to Dallas and you're on your, I think, fourth purchase in Dallas. Uh, why'd you pick Dallas out of every place else? And, and why'd you decide to go outside of Phoenix? Yeah, great questions there, Darren. So, you know, in Phoenix, uh, we started initially, um, our entire plan was to do value add multifamily. Uh, so the first deal that I went into as a general partner was a 36 unit deal. We bought that in February of 2019. Zach and Robert had already had the deal under contract and they just needed, you know, an extra uh, uh, capital for the deal. I wanted to be a GP. So, you know, this was the first deal where, it was just our money. It wasn't, we didn't have any syndication uh, going on there. So we, we kind of put all our money into the deal, kind of learned the ins and outs of how the deal worked itself and how the back office worked, the asset management worked, how the business plan kind of worked. And once we were comfortable uh, with how, you know, our business plan and our strategy was going to work, we decided to start venturing out and, and start doing syndications. So, um, you know, at the time, Zach had his own brand. I had my own and Robert had his own. So we were kind of like, quote unquote, dating mm -hmm. each other for, for these different deals. Uh, and, uh, by the, yeah, by the end of the year, you know, we, we really kind of realized that our skill sets were very complementary. You know, Zach is, you know, kind of, he's the face of the company. He, he's great with building relationships with the brokers, building, uh, partnerships with capital, uh, equity providers. Um, I am the worst with that. <laughs> I, I, I cannot save myself in a conversation for longer than 30 seconds. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's, you know, but this conversation is going to be longer than 30 seconds. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I guarantee you, you that you talking about myself. It's, it's really easy. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, he, he's great at, uh, you know, being the relationship guy, but he hates Excel. He hates, 
everything related to numbers, essentially. So that's where I come in. Uh, you know, my skill set is underwriting, asset management, making sure we're from a paper perspective, uh, running through our business plan and hitting the numbers that we need to. And then, uh, you know, Robert, he's great on the field, making sure that we're when we're renovating and doing our, um, you know, business plan execution that we're putting in the right materials and it's it's going in accordance with our plan. So, you know, we kind of complemented our skill sets across the board. And by the beginning of 2020, we had just kind of said, you know what, let's just get rid of our personal brands and kind of work together as, as partners in this, in this joint venture called at the time we called it summit equity, but then, you know, there was another summit equity in, in Arizona that there was some confusion. So we rebranded to rise 48 equity. Um, you know, since, since we rebranded, you know, we've acquired over, um, I want to say like 30 plus deals, uh, in, in Phoenix and, uh, across the entire spectrum, um, we, we've been the general partners, you know, we identify the deal, uh, we get all the equity lined up, uh, we run the deals and at the beginning we hired third party property management to do the basic day to day, you know, operations of the deal. Um, and in 2019, we actually had our property manager do the construction management as well. Um, quickly kind of realized that having the property manager do construction management was, not ideal. Um, and as an example, you know, one of the deals we bought in August of 19, we had our property management oversee the exterior paint. And that's not a huge, you know, overkill in terms of renovations or looking over overseeing construction. That took them six months to six get months, six months to just put the paint on, on the exterior. And we oh, were just shell shocked. We we're like, Hey, this does not take this long to do this. Like you guys need to be on the vendor, making sure they're doing their work. And we were just kept getting the runaround. So in uh, 2020, when we were kind of expanding a little bit more, we just said, you know what, we're going to bring all this in house from the construction side. So we brought construction management in house where when we were doing exterior paint or doing, you know, any sort of exterior renovations, Robert would essentially go and oversee it. And in you know, 2021, we hired our director of asset management, kind of gave her the ropes on uh, kind of overseeing CapEx management. And, and she basically, you know, took that six month timeline down to about 45 days. Wow. So the moment we take over an asset, we have a vendor ready to go. And within 45 days, we've essentially rebranded the asset and have put the exterior paint on so that now it's like it's a brand new uh, asset after we've kind of taken over. Um, and then that was just exterior pain, like interior renovations. Um, I can't begin to tell you like the deals that we were doing, like, you know, we would get budgets from our property manager saying, Hey, it's going to cost 6,000 or 9,000 a door to renovate right after we take over the property. It, it's like, it changes completely. Like it goes like, Hey, it's actually going to cost around 15 to 20 K a door. You know, like we underbid it accidentally, but Hey, this is a new price, take it or leave it. So we were just getting the runaround, uh, for even on the interior renovation. So in 2021, when we took that over, you know, we made sure we were accurately bidding out interior renovations, exterior renovations to kind of dial in our budgets. So that's, that was the, essentially the next step that we did was we, we started with the equity company, brought construction management in house. And then towards the end of 2021, we brought property management in house. 
And that was primarily because of the situation that we are in and the economic environment that we're in. Um, you know, we're at 3.7% unemployment right now. So it's essentially really tough to get good employees at the, at the, at the properties. And our third party PM was essentially not taking care of their employees. Um, we were losing good property managers, good leasing consultants on site, because at the time the, that PM was not offering any benefits and uh, they were not offering any sort of training for their on sites. So they would come on and a month later just leave essentially because they're they've been kind of left out there to dry. Um, so we brought property management in house at the tail end of 2021. And, you know, in 2022, really kind of honed in and established the processes of running a management company, a construction company, and an equity company all at once. And then by the end of 2022, you know, we were in a situation where we're like, okay, well, now that we have the business model established, we can now replicate this in other markets. So we started looking at different markets like Dallas, Tampa, um, Utah, Idaho. Um, but, uh, you know, we found some good partners to kind of understand how property taxes work in Dallas, uh, how, in, how we can underwrite insurance a little bit more accurately on the front end. So uh, uh, and, you know, Dallas, from a metrics perspective, it has a it has a really strong job growth, really strong uh, population growth. Uh, which are really the two key fundamentals to look at when you're looking at multifamily investing. Um, and uh, we figured, hey, you know, now is the time to kind of attack. So at the end of 2022, beginning 2023, we started hitting the market really hard uh, and started identifying deals we wanted to buy. And uh, that's how we kind of took the framework we established in Phoenix and, and moved it over to Dallas and started replicating it out there. That's huge. Um, you know, you said something that I've done a lot of these interviews and you know, there's, there are some folks that when they get to a certain size, they, they do vertical integration and say they have a vertically integrated company. And, and typically that's bringing property management in-house. Um, a lot of times they're still using, thir- you know, uh, they're not having, they don't have their own cr- construction arm. Um, you've, you've got the construction arm. You've got, you've got the um, property management and also under the construction arm, it's my understanding that you also have rela- overseas relationships where you're bringing, um, you know, materials in at a much yep. more affordable um, manner to 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 yep. use in the rehabs. Um, yep, yep. But the thing that you said that was different was taking care of employees. You know yeah. that, you know, people talk all all day long about you know, the value add and, mm-hmm. and then people complain about, you know, leasing manager leaving or, or uh, you didn't talk about the maintenance side, but I, in my oh, experience, yeah. the maintenance people, like it's hard it, when you find a good maintenance, you know, lead, you, you do, do not want to lose that care. person. <laughs> like they are, yep. they are so good and yeah. they, they just tend to, churn. So taking care of your employees, you know, it may cost a little bit more, but Mm -hmm. in the end, that saves you so much. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. No, I mean, you know, property management is one thing, but like all our employees, we, we value them extremely, extremely significantly. Like we're, you know, we have around 90 people on the corporate side now and about, I want to say like 150-ish people on the um, 
um, on the property management side. And the one thing, you know, that we've kind of understood about this entire organization is we're a people, we're a service organization and a service organization is nothing without its people. So if you don't treat your uh, employees well, uh, your, your services that you're going to offer are not going to be uh, we're not, they're not going to be uh, the leader in, in the industry. So, uh, you know, every employee that we hire, you know, they get 100% of their uh, medical benefits paid for and then 50% of their dependents benefits paid for. That's industry leading, essentially. If you look at, you know, all the other property management companies, they might offer around 50 to 75% of their employees uh, medical health insurance paid for and nothing for their dependents or maybe 10, 25% for their dependents. Uh, but we try to, you know, essentially tell our employees that, hey, you know, we're buying workforce housing, um, apartment complexes, and we're, we're going to need you to grind, essentially. These are not class AA assets built, you know, last year without any issues. You're going to have to essentially take care of the property very well. And the last thing we want you to worry about is having unforeseen medical expenses or having to worry about, you know, uh, your dependents, uh, medical medical insurance. So, you know, that was the one thing we identified very early on that was extremely critical to, to make sure that we, we identified the right individuals for the properties. And, and property management in and of itself, you know, the, the turnover in the industry is very high. Um, so we, you know, we do go through and, um, uh, you know, we might have a property manager that starts on Monday and then, you know, next month they're essentially leaving because they found an extra $3,000 somewhere else. Um, and, and that's fine. You know, we understand that's the business, but uh, we want to make sure that we retain the right employees. So if you're a, you know, if you're an outstanding employee and, and, and you know, you, you kick butt on, on, on the job responsibilities that you have, we will do whatever we can to retain you. And as having property management in house is so critical because if let's say, you know, we have a leasing consultant that's making $20 an hour, that person finds a job for $23 an hour. If you have a third party PM, you can only tell them like, hey, it's okay if you want to increase the budget, please just keep them whatever you can, uh, whatever you can do. And the PM can just say like, you know what, we're not going to pay more than 20 because then this sets a precedent for the other people. Right. So we're going to just let them go. Right. Uh, when it's in house, we can just tell that on site, like, hey, look, we'll match the offer. We like you, want to keep you long term. You know, we'll, we'll pay you 23 an hour. That's perfectly fine. So um, that's the type of control you cannot get with a third party PM. You're, and, you're and, so, yeah. so right. I had that happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to go back to the maintenance guy. Like, yeah. he only yeah. wanted like a dollar or two more an hour. And he was yep. awesome. Yep. I had like four other maintenance people and before that. And, and I'm like, we cannot lose this guy. I'm like, pay him whatever he yeah. wants. And yeah. But the, we had a third-party property management company, and they were like, we're not paying them that. And Yeah, I know. And it's like— He it's, left, it's and then the next thing yeah. you know, we've got a revolving door. Like, you know, yeah. people yeah. that aren't, aren't quality people, that they come for a couple months, and then the, somebody mm -hmm. else comes, and it's like, oh, my gosh, yep. that was for a dollar or two an hour. Like, just bite yeah. the bullet. Right. I know. No, it's hard. I don't know what it is about the third-party PM model that they don't want to— do things like that. I mean, I'm sure there's some good third-party PMs out there that, you know, that see this and, and they understand how to run the business. But, um, you know, that control was really the reason we brought it in-house. And, and in order to kind of retain the control and continue to execute our business plan appropriately, um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were vertically integrated where the construction side on the business plan execution definitely was critical for us to make sure 
we were overseeing the renovations and we were overseeing all the uh, uh, interior and exterior amenity in inputs. And then on the property management side, because we're renovating, you know, 20, anywhere between five to 20 units per month per property, um, those leasing um, bonuses we're offering and the leasing incentives we're offering, they're appropriately aligned when um, they get the units renovated and into their rent ready products so they can actually get them leased out relatively quickly. So um, that was, you know, that was critical in order to make sure that our, our business plan was getting executed appropriately. That's awesome. Uh you know, I I don't know if you experienced this or not. I'm going back to the employee thing because I think it's just so unique. You know, in this business, you know, you typically have syndicators that, you know, maybe it's two two people that are partners together. Maybe it's five partners together. Um, but they're the owners that of the property and they're going to do asset management of on top of the property, third-party property management. But... They're the ones that are making the, the, you know, the big money and, and their investors. And they and many times just look at, you know, people, the employees that are on the job, on the property, day in and day out, just as an employee. And I think there's two things, you know, about that. one is benefits and pay and people are moving down the road for one or two or three dollars more an hour, but two is the way you make them feel. You know, it. You know that's it's a tough business, the property management business. You know, and you've got you know tenants that you're having you're dealing with that some of the tenants can be very difficult, and then on top of that, you have the high demands of the property management company and the ownership. Um, so I think that. You know, I'm just thinking if I'm an employee and I'm with somebody that makes me feel like they care about me, care about my family, then it's going to make me think twice about jumping ship because it, that is unique in this industry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what I kind of picked up. So my background, I used to work at PwC. So I worked oh, there for okay. about three years. And, you know, PwC is a huge organization. There were 200,000 employees there. I'm a PW and, and, alum also. Oh, nice. Long time. Uh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but oh, did you do audit? I did audit a long time ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in audit as well. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and you know how it is. You know, you're, you're on an audit team. You go out to client by client, essentially. And, and you're basically, you know, every audit team's different. You can have one manager at, you know, client A and then another manager at client B. Well, in my, uh, you know, my second busy season that I was there, I had essentially the best team that I could work with. I, I love my managers, the seniors that I worked with and, and the uh, auditor associates that I worked with. We were working, you know, 100 plus hours per week on, on this engagement. And if, if I, I got along with everybody, we had a lot of fun and I didn't think twice about... God, what am what am I doing with my life? Like I cannot be working hundred hour weeks here for you know two two three months, and um, I, that was perfectly fine for me. I was happy. I move over you know to the next client over to uh, that was a private filer, and we only worked around fifty hours a week for that one, less than uh, or just around half of what the first client was. I could not wait to leave at the end of the day. Like my manager and I were just not. 
we didn't see eye to eye. You know, I got my work done. She got her work done. But like we just could not get along. And um, like I was <laughs> I was more stressed out working for this other manager where I was working 50 hours a week than I was with the manager. I was working 100, 110 hours a week. And I always, you know, even like busy season, you know, starts from essentially December to all the way to March, April, depending on the clients you have. And um, my first client was always this uh, large filer, you know, it's a Fortune 100 company. And I was happy being there. You know, the last year I was there, um, they had acquired, I want to say, eight other companies. And I was in charge of the acquisitions side of things. So I was reviewing all the 49A valuations, making sure all the work was getting done. And I was there, you know, pretty much one of the first people in and last people out. And, you know, I was coming in at 8 a.m., leaving around 3 a.m., and I was happy. <laughs> so it sounds crazy, but uh, the manager that I was working with was awesome to work with. They were they were amazing, and I was a senior at the time, so I had a couple associates under me. They were amazing to work with, um, and then I moved over to this other client again with this manager that I don't like. And you know, as a senior, you have a little bit more responsibility, but I was still coming in, leaving, you know, doing around 50, 50 hours a week. And, you know, that's what broke me. That's when I was like, I cannot do this anymore. I essentially left at that point um, to go in pr uh, management consulting. And uh, um, it's, it's really the people, you know. So as, as long as you work for somebody that makes you feel like you're taken care of and, and, and you know, that you're wanted there, that makes a, a world of a difference. Yeah, and, and, sh and sharing, yeah. you know, sharing the mission. Like you guys talked about, like, hey, look, the, it's not, these these properties aren't going to be easy to you know we have a lot of work ahead of us but if you're up for the challenge we're we're we got your back you know and and I just haven't seen a lot of that in the, in this business so I think that that is best in class and I want to highlight that for sure um, hey talk about you know in today's market you know the transactions are down like eighty percent right. Um, there's people that may say Rise 48 has grown really fast. They haven't been through a recession. Um, they're going into a second market. You know, you know, do do they have the controls in place? And do they have, you know, are they how are they looking at this and how are they getting deals done when nobody else is getting deals done? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a great question. So, you know, in Phoenix, you don't buy 30 plus assets without making good relationships with the brokerage community because the brokerage community controls effectively 90, 95% of all the deals that happen that are over 100 plus units. So when, uh, you know, when we decided that we wanted to go out in Dallas, the market was pretty depressed, essentially, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of tail end of, I would say Q3, Q4, 2022, we kind of figured transaction volume is going to be significantly down based on where the Fed's taking rates. And, you know, a lot of people in, you know, second half of 23, first half of 24 are going to start getting a lot of, um, there's going to be some distressed uh, sales that are going to happen. So we wanted to kind of get ahead of that. And what we did was uh, Zach had essentially reached out to all the brokers in Phoenix and had them introduce us to their counterparts in Dallas. Oh, that's so, great. 
you know, Northmark, CB, uh, Mark Similichap, et cetera, they all have their counterparts because they're nationwide brokerage uh, uh, firms. They introduced us to their counterparts in Dallas. We went and actually met with them in person and, and talked to them about, you know, here's our deal criteria. Here's what we're looking at. Here's how we're underwriting the deals right now. Uh, ask for their input. Like, what do you think we should change here or there? Obviously, their brokers are going to tell you, hey, you know, assume a 5 6% rental increase every year or something. Um, we were, you know, we have our own model. We assume 0% in year one and then trail back years two through five around three to 5% depending on the year. And um, where, you know, we, we underwrite conservatively, conservatively on our end. So basically what we did was we updated our model to take into account that property taxes are not going to only increase by two, three percent a year. We updated our model to assume that insurance is not going to cost 300 a door. It's going to probably cost between nine to 1200 a door, depending on uh, the location and, and the type of property and the um, losses that it's experienced. And at that point, we started getting essentially deal flow from, from these brokers. So, uh, you know, what we experienced was a lot of the deals that they sent over were deals that didn't get done in 2021, 2022. And the pricing that the seller wanted was pricing from 2021, 2022. So, uh, you know, we're underwriting these deals and we're telling the brokers like, hey, you know, on based on our underwriting, this deal is like a two cap, one and a half cap. Like this is not working for us. Like and we and we shop all the comps in house. So we're going out. You know, we have a asset management associate out in Dallas. He essentially goes out there and chops the comps for all the properties that we uh, were underwriting. So he'll tell us like, hey, these uh, comparable assets are, are charging these rents for unit, you know, one one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedrooms. We're plugging those into plugging those into our model. And we're just telling the brokers like, look, man, we're like 20, 25 percent off. Like this is not going to work. And, you know, typically. Um, what happens is when you're underwriting these deals in a brand new market, the broker is going to say like, well, this should work at this price because of X, Y, Z. So tell me what you guys are doing so I can help you get there. So what we started doing was, you know, we sent them our model and said like, here you go. Here's our entire model. And this deal doesn't work because of X, Y, Z. And, you know, if we're doing something wrong, they would immediately give us feedback saying like, hey, you know, the rents are you're assuming are not correct. Like you should be using these comps or that comps. And we'll take it with a grain of salt and try to see if we can kind of model that in. Uh, but, you know, majority of the deals that we underwrote, we essentially when we sent it back to the broker, they basically said, yeah, you're right. It doesn't work. <laughs> Here's the next deal. So we, you know, we went in over 160 deals in Dallas by now. And uh, every underwriting takes like 10 to 20 hours. Like, you know, on the Excel side, it might take, I don't know, half an hour to two hours to make sure everything's done right. Rent comp shopping takes it by in and of itself takes almost a day sometimes because we have we want to make sure we actually drive the assets and make sure we know where what we're looking at. And then when Zach and I kind of sit down, talk about the debt side of things, the equity side of things on what type of returns to to um, solve for, that takes a little bit of time as well. So so we're underwriting these deals and giving back feedback to the brokerage community. And, and you know, we've underwritten over 160 deals, around 2% of them have gotten close enough where we can say like, hey, we'll send out an LOI and make this deal work. And, um, you know, thankfully, we've we've won like four deals out of all the deals we've underwritten and, uh, uh, you know, and we've acquired those assets. 
but majority of the assets, I would say on average, were about 20% away from the purchase price that they want, which is very similar to how we started in Phoenix and, and how we identified deals in Phoenix. We, you know, the first, I, I remember specifically, Villa Serena was the first syndication that I did uh, with Zach, Robert, and a couple of the partners. And um, it took me 45 deals before I identified Villa Serena to go after it. And that was in a market where it wasn't as you know competitive, I would say, as 2021, 2022. Uh, but that took a while to find that first one. And it's the same same situation in Dallas. Like you know, we have to go. We have to have aggressive terms, obviously, to get these deals. But uh, you know, we can execute. So we've we've put under contract and acquired all the deals that you know that we've uh, put in a contract in Dallas and and that's how you kind of build those relationships and that's how you get the the actual deals not just you know the deals that didn't sell in 21 or 22 yeah that's that's huge i i think of today's market um you know as being more of a off market type of market mm-hmm. where you know back in the heyday a year two three years ago it was you know, you put it out to market and you get 20, 25 offers and then you go into best and final and then you'd go into a second best and final and like you, you know, spend a lot of time and, and hopefully you win the deal. Um, today's market, I think of as being like, well, somebody may want to sell the realistic seller is selling because they, for one reason or another, they have to get out of the deal and they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily want to broadcast it. And so right. they're like, hey, if can you find me a quick buyer that can actually execute? And yeah. I'm a believer that you guys are are receiving that phone call. And that's why I like to align myself with you guys, because you're getting that phone call where some other people aren't ever getting that phone call. Right, right. Yeah, no, track record is extremely critical, right? So the 43 deals that we, we put 43 deals on a contract, we closed 43 deals. And and that track record, you know, speaks for itself. And uh, we, we try to tell the brokers as well, you know, like, look, this is not our first rodeo. We know what we're doing. We know, you know, for example, terms today, you can potentially get some refundable time, uh, essentially get like an access period or, you know, due diligence period before you go hard on your earnest money. We know what we're doing in terms of underwriting deals with conservative assumptions. So when we put out an offer, we tell the broker, like, we can go hard day one if we need to, because we know that once we go through due diligence, we're not going to be at the numbers we need to for our CapEx or we need to be at for our um you know, for our underwriting, like operational expenses or, or our rents. Um, I purposely will pare back some of our uh, assumptions for rent growth or just pro forma rents, or I'll pare back or increase our expenses or, or I'll increase our CapEx just to make sure, you know, that if something was to happen during DD, I'm covered. And then from, a do, from the debt sizing side, we've never been, you know, a very high leverage firm. We've, our maximum leverage we've ever taken is 75% LTV. Right now, we're taking around 55 to 60% LTV on our loans because the rates are a little bit high. And, um, uh, you know, if we can make the deal work based on our based on these metrics, then we'll pursue it. But if, if it doesn't work, we'll just tell the broker like, hey, the sale's not going to work. Here's the reasons why it doesn't work. Let me know if I'm doing something wrong. But if not, let me know when you have a next deal uh, available. That's great. Um, you know, I like that approach too. Brokers, you know... They, 
they want to build relationships and, and they know when they're dealing with somebody that knows what they're doing, right? So, I yeah. mean, the fact that you, you're not like just telling them, no, it doesn't work. You're like sharing, yeah. like, here's the reason why it doesn't work. And they, le- yeah. they look at it and they're like, you know what? It's true. <laughs> like, right, on right. to the next. So you yeah. brought up the debt side and that is, you know, a, something that a lot of people are talking about, right? So mm-hmm. interest rates have gone up dramatically. A lot of multifamily deals, the cash flow has been negatively impacted. There's a lot of deals that have had um, distributions either cut or stopped altogether. Um, mm-hmm. There's been some deals that, you know, have, have had to go out and do capital calls to bring in additional capital. Um, and, and investors are like nervous because, because they're in right. other deals that they're seeing this. So when they, you know, get in, you know, and they receive an opportunity for a new op- opportunity, mm-hmm. there's some fear there. There's some fear that, Hey, one, should we be in fixed rate financing? Right. Should we be in long-term fixed rate financing? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess t- talk about how you guys view the debt side and, you know, how do you mitigate yeah. the risk? Yeah. So, you know, the very first deals that we did in, in Phoenix, they were all fixed rate Freddie Mac uh, loans. Uh, they, uh, I think the first two syndications we did, they were 10 year fixed with five years IO. I think the interest rate varied between 3.4 to 3.7%. Great time to get, do fixed rate financing or, or so we were kind of led to believe. Well, 10-year fixed uh, rates come with a significant prepay penalty. Um, they, uh, Freddie or Fannie call it yield maintenance or defeasance, which basically means, you know, they're essentially telling their investors that if you if you buy this loan from Fannie or Freddie, this loan is going to pay out 3.7%. And that if this loan is prepaid, they're going to take the money and then invest it in uh, like a treasury bond, where if the treasury bond is less, paying out less than 3.7%, then the uh, borrower is going to pay a prepay penalty so that Freddie or Fannie can buy more pre, uh, more treasury bonds to make up that 3.7% for the next 10 years. So the first two deals you know, that we did that were fixed rate financed, we, uh, I can talk about Villa Serena. That one was a $13.1 million loan. We bought that in August and we sold it in November, 2021. Well, rates in November, 2021 were not so high where you could essentially not have a defeasance penalty. So when we sold the deal, we had to pay a $3 million prepay penalty. $3 million? On that loan. Yep. Holy cow. About 26% of the loan amount as a prepay penalty on that loan when we sold it. Now, fixed rate financing is great when you want to hold a deal for five to seven to 10 years. It's, it's a perfect product for that. And when you're not doing value add, when you're not looking at that appreciation, it's a perfect product. I, I, I have nothing against it. I think it's a great product. But, you know, our company does value add strategy. The whole point of a value add strategy is you're going to infuse CapEx into the deal. You're going to increase the NOI. Sure, that's going to unlock some of the you know cash flow for the investors, but you're really after the appreciation play. You're you know you can get maybe thirty to forty percent of cash flow from your total returns, but six or, or sixty to seventy percent of the total profits 
are built into that sale. So when you put on fixed rate financing with a, with a significant reliance on um, increasing ca- increasing NOI to increase the, the value of the property, well, you don't want to lock yourself in for five to seven years because you, you want to be able to take that equity out. And you can take supplementals, you know, to kind of in, in, to refinance, take a supplemental and, and just continue cash flowing. That's a great way to do it. But uh, the other aspect of fixed rate financing through agency is that they do not fund your CapEx. So you're raising all that money up front and then you're going to be holding in the property's bank account and then you're going to slowly, uh, you know, pay it out uh, to, to pay for the uh, capital expenditures to renovate the asset. So the other thing we kind of realized with those two, uh, those two deals that we had done was, OK, well, we're raising four million for the down payment, raising two million for the CapEx. And that $2 million is going to just sit in the property's bank account, earn 0.05% interest. And I have to pay out, you know, a 14, 15% IRR on that $2 million that's sitting in the bank. That's That doesn't help the deals at all. And it doesn't help me execute my plan to be able to sell within two to five years. So that's when we kind of switched over from fixed rate financing to floating rate, because floating rate does not have those prepay penalties. I can, you know, with the, with the agency floating rate, you can ascend, you, you have a 12 month lockout, then you have a 1% exit fee. That's all it is. And, you know, the deals like Villa Serena, where we, you know, sold for a great equity multiple, essentially could have gotten extra 50 to 75% in profits for our investors if we didn't have to pay that prepay penalty. So um, that's when we, you know, that's why we think doing floating rate um, loans is better for the long term for value add strategies because you're really kind of looking for that appreciation play to kind of unlock the majority of the the profits for investors. So I get that. Um, Now, agency versus non-agency. So I I know I'm in some deals like this and I I know other syndicators that are in deals like this where they have agency floaters, but they with a with a cap but then mm-hmm. they're required to once they get to a, a year out from having their cap expiring they're having to escrow, escrow. and mm-hmm. so the escrow for the a new cap is killing the cash flow on a lot of deals yep yep so how do you look at that yeah no that's definitely a great question so right now the environment that we're in you know the interest rates if the the yield curve is inverted um you have you know one month so far at around 5.05 whereas the 10-year treasury is at 3.7 percent um normally you would see the one year or the one month so far around two percent one to two percent is where the baseline would be whereas you know the 10-year treasury should be around three to four percent on that end so that's, that's a normal that's a normal uh strategy so what's happening is you know all these interest rate cap providers they're basically increasing the price of their cap costs because they see that they're gonna have to pay the interest uh, on the loan because the cap that you're going to buy is, is going to be around two and a half percent, whereas the the floating rate debt is basing it off of five percent. So they're building that in, which is causing these cap costs to increase significantly. Now, we don't do agency floaters anymore. Uh, we used to do that, but I think the reason we we moved away from it was primarily because. Again, we had to raise the the capex as equity, leave it in the bank account, and then just kind of slowly deploy it out. Um, we do bridge debt financing now, where we don't have to do an escrow reserve for those uh, caps that expire, and that's because we've bought 
you know, every every single bridge debt that we've done, we do essentially a three plus one plus one term, which basically means it's a 36 month term plus two one year extensions. And we've always bought three year caps for every single deal. So what happens there is, you know, from a bridge debt perspective or the lender perspective, the term is three years and you've you've bought the cap for three years. That means you don't have to escrow anything from the lender perspective. If I was to execute uh, or uh, if I was to execute one of the uh, um, extensions, yep, I would have to at that point buy another interest rate cap at that point. So um, that's that's the way you know we're protected from a cash flow basis that they're not escrowing any funds because we, we didn't buy two year caps where a third year is going to come up and now we have to pay for an extra year. And you know we think from uh, from the part our oldest deal that we currently own is uh, uh, as of June twenty twenty one. So that deal is going to expire, or that term is going to expire June 2024, and the cap is going to expire in June 2024. So, you know, based on the analysis that we've run, we'll be able to essentially refinance out of that deal by, uh, we're projecting to refinance out by May of 2024 at the absolute latest. Uh, we're probably going to start the process actually in like February, March, but uh, we'll, we'll be able to refinance out and if if you know the market's not doing great and it doesn't make make doesn't make sense to sell, we might put on you know fixed rate debt on it for five years um, and hold it for another couple of years, as opposed to like a ten year uh, fixed rate product, um, or we might just uh, refinance, do a floating rate debt, and then from the proceeds of the loan buy a cap, so our investors don't have to do put any additional funds in. Uh, we're essentially using the loan to pay for the cap itself. And we're thinking, you know, and uh, we just had a meeting with our debt brokers yesterday and they're thinking as well, you know, the rates are probably going to start coming down beginning of next year at the absolute latest, assuming inflation starts trickling down a little bit. And then as rates come down, your, uh, you know, your cap is not going to cost as much and you can use proceeds from a loan to essentially pay for the cap. So um, I know it's short term. Um, you know, a lot of investors are kind of seeing their deals, their escrows essentially go from like, you know, 2000 a month to like 20, 30, 40, 50,000 yeah. a month. It's not like 10 and 20%. It's like, no, it's like, yeah, it's like a thousand percent. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> um, and, and people that are not in the business, but they're investors, yeah. they're like, holy cow. And it looks yeah. like it's, it's gone, but it really, it's, yeah. it's like in an escrow account. And the sponsor may end up having to buy that cap, you know, when it yeah. expires or may not, you know, or right. they may refi or they may sell. Like there's yeah. a lot of unknowns as to how that's, that money is going right. to be used. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, thankfully, you know, it is in an escrow account. So when you do sell, you'll get the money back, assuming you haven't, you haven't had a need to buy the cap. Um, so it's, it's short term pain, uh, which I think a lot of, uh, sponsors and investors are feeling, uh, but uh, thankfully, you know, it's just uh, a hedge against buying a cap in the future uh, as an escrow today. So, and and you know, some deals that we've acquired in Dallas. One of the deals we acquired is it was exactly in that situation. They had a Freddie floater uh, in uh, in place, and their escrow went from eight thousand a month to ninety two thousand a month oh, uh, because cow. of because of the cap. And, you know, as an investor, and I think it was under a tick ownership, essentially, but as an investor, their cash flow got decimated. Right. Uh, they had, they were making no money uh, from the deal. And um, they, they essentially said, you know what, we might as well sell. Uh, we don't want to buy another cap, hold it for an extra two, three years and try to sell later on. 
So they decided to sell. We bought it, and uh, you know now they can free up their capital to go after another deal. Uh, to, that'll ca- actually cash flow. So, um, and the other part, the 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 worst part of this for some investors is there's sometimes not enough NOI to cover the escrow. So, um, you know, the deal may be cash flowing perfectly fine, but when your escrow goes from 8,000 to 92,000 for just a cap, if the deal's not making that extra, you know, 70, 74,000 a month or something, then you're going to have to do a capital call to to, to fund those reserves, which is not a situation you want to be in as a sponsor. Right, exactly. so talk about the in the news there's a lot of press about rent stalling out mm-hmm. and um from what I can see it's from the deals that I'm in and and, and um talking to people it's the top line rent growth like you can't yeah. just have an apartment and raise the rent by 5% or 10% or 15% and and not do anything but there still are apartments that are below market that if you improve right. them, you could bring them up to market. And that's kind yeah. of the, the game plan that you guys are focused on. Is that correct? Exactly. Yep. Yep. So the way we look at rent growth, we're kind of looking at it from like a trend perspective, right? So in the past 20 years, Phoenix has consistently on average grown about five to 6% a year. That's, that's facts based on real page. And that's what we've seen in our, you know, in our, in our market. And unfortunately for Phoenix, that rent growth tends to go skyrocket in a couple of years. And then it comes down pretty fast in the next year or so. So, you know, the past two years, rents have gone up around t- between 15 to 25% a year uh, for Phoenix. And this year, I think as the latest uh, data from RealPage, rents have gone down around 4%. So, but if you average those out, Phoenix is still leading the, the nation in total rent growth for, uh, you know, for that top line rent growth. Well, when we underwrite, we're not underwriting 10 to 15% increases in rent growth. We're underwriting between three to 5% um, on average for the rent growth for years one through five. And you know, on a stabilized basis, if you look at the five-year horizon at a time, you're gonna see that in Phoenix. And, uh, you and you're exactly you're in California, right. right? Yeah. Well, I moved to Phoenix oh, uh, April of 21, okay. yeah, yep. But uh, yeah, no, we, uh, uh, we've always underwritten between three to 5% in our deals. And uh, what we what we've kind of seen from our market is that because we're buying value add, we're renovating these properties and renovating the interiors at about fifteen to sixteen thousand dollars a door. We're putting in brand new quartz countertops, stainless steel appliances, um, you know, vinyl plank flooring, interior paint, LED fixtures, plumbing fixtures, etc. And because we're putting such heavy capex into the deals, we're essentially standing out for our potential tenants. So when they compare us to an existing asset, they're seeing like a class A finish in an 80s product versus, you know, Formica counters or resurface counters uh, on a comparable property. And it's making it easier for us to keep and, and retain our tenants and, and, and get new tenants into that building. Um, and, and you're exactly right. You know, rents have kind of stalled and gone down, but that's top line rent growth. Right. What we're seeing based on our underwriting, 
we're increasing rents around $29 above what we projected rents to be at right now for our deals. So if we bought a deal in you know 2021, we assumed say $1,000 a, a unit for rent growth, or sorry, for, for rents at that point, we, we also assumed rent growth or market rent growth in 2021, 2022, 2023. In 2023, that $1,000 might be now $1,095. Well, we're getting $29 above that 1,095. So um, we're getting the rents that we need. Now, the market as a whole has been a little bit depressed. So you're, you know, we're offering concessions because everybody else in the market's offering concessions. And from a tenant perspective, if you're not offering concessions, it's automatically, you know, they're not going to visit the site. So in order to kind of entice people to come in and look at the property, look at the product, we're offering concessions for those tenants, but we're getting the rents that we need from a top line basis uh, based on our underwriting for these deals. Yeah, that's cool. Um, talk about momentum. And when I talk about momentum, uh, more like velocity of money. So yeah. you're, you know, you're implementing these value. Add One of the things I've been impressed with, you know, obviously you guys were in a, in a great market with, tailwinds behind you, you're, you know, you're in the number one rent growth market and, and, you know, a cap rate compression market. Um, so, but you were turning deals faster than a lot of other syndicators would. Yeah. Other syndicators would maybe wait three or four years. Maybe you guys were turning deals in a year and a half, two years, and then yep. people would have the money and then they could reinvest that. So, Yep. Kind of talk about that velocity of money versus a, a buy and hold strategy. And then maybe tie in the fact that uh, because there's taxes involved on a sale versus mm -hmm. versus a buy and hold. Um, yep. But you guys also offer 1031 exchange mm -hmm. kind of rollover. So talk about all that. Yeah, of course. So, you know, from an, uh, from our perspective, what our investors want are consistent returns um, over, you know, like if we, if we're doing a five-year projection for our investors, we're typically assuming that we're going to get to around doubling their money in about five years, you know, based, depends deal by deal, but, uh, you know, that's kind of like the, kind of like what we solve to for our underwriting and that translates to around 20% average annual returns. Well, internally, we've kind of decided that, hey, if we can give an investor 20 to 30% average annual returns over, say, two years or, you know, three years, which is like a 1.4 to 1.6 equity multiple, well, why don't we'll, we'll do that, essentially, because that's still beating the market. That's still making sure that we're giving outsized return to our investors. Um, but, you know, it's going to, again, very deal by deal and every deal is going to be different. But internally, we've essentially established that if uh, if we can get to a good a good return for our investors with before the five year horizon is up, we're going to go ahead and sell the deal. And that's exactly what happened in the past. You know, the 11 deals we've sold, our average hold period was around 18 months and we've given outsized returns to our investors for those deals. Um, I think the average 
um, I think equity multiple was around 2.1 for those 18 months. Now, as you mentioned, you know, we're in, we're in the top market in the nation, tailwinds behind us, and we took advantage of the market. Uh, we know we don't try to get greedy and say, hey, if I can just wait for another year, I can get to a 3x or a 4x equity multiple. Um, it's always been, uh, if we can get to a good return, we, we have our uh, essentially floor that we've established. And if we can hit that floor, as long as we don't trigger any short-term capital gains taxes, you know, we're going to go ahead and, and execute the sale. So we're going to buy, reposition and sell essentially as fast as possible. And it kind of goes back to my point earlier where I said, you know, a lot of the equity is locked in to that profit at the end. So you don't want to end up cash flowing the deal 6% a year, 7% a year, and then get 50% after 10 years. If I can give you 6% in the first year and then give you 50% in the second year, I would I would think that an investor would want that more so than waiting five, six years on that consistent cash flow. Right. And then the second thing about taxes, um, yeah, we offer you know 1031 exchanges for investors. So what we do is we'll sell the first deal and then exchange the, the proceeds from that deal into the next deal that we've identified as a good replacement asset. That way it, it may help you know, investors defer their capital gains taxes and depreciation recapture taxes. And then investors who do want to cash out and don't want to be part of that uh, process, we redeem them from the partnership at, at the sale price. So if, assuming that we had essentially sold the deal, we would give them their, their you know, initial capital plus, plus the profits on sale. Uh, at that point. So, and we worked with a couple of tax attorneys to make sure, you know, we've, we've done the process appropriately. You know, it's it's clear in the eyes of the IRS, but, you know, every investor is different. Their tax uh, strategy is different. So they should talk to their tax advisors to kind of identify the the right way to, to kind of participate in these deals or not. But, you know, we we've, we know that, you know, capital gains taxes are, are crucial to kind of look at and depreciation recapture taxes are also are crucial as well. So we want to help investors kind of preserve their um, their capital and preserve their uh, their growth of their capital. And that's why we offer that 1031 exchange um, uh, program across our deals. Uh, whenever we sell, we always try to look for that replacement asset uh, for, for our investors. Awesome. You think today is a good time to buy? <laughs> I think, I think, every, I, I think every time in, in any market, it's not how, when you get into the markets, how long you're in the market, right? And you can, you can say that you can make the same argument for stocks, bonds, alternative investments. I don't know if you can make the argument for crypto, but uh, for real estate, it's always been, you know, a buy and hold strategy or buy. And essentially you can hold it for a year, two years, 10 years depending on the market cycle, you're going to make money on real estate. So the deals we're buying right now, actually the deals that only work for us right now are the ones where the seller has to sell. If this, uh, like, you know, we're not sellers right now because we know the market's down. The market's down anywhere between 20 to 30% uh, versus where it was at last year. And I would say right now pricing for the market is around where it was around, I would say Q2 of 2021. Um, so if I was to sell a deal today, I would essentially be offering a hefty discount for a buyer and I'm not in a position to do that. So I would not sell anything, but as a buyer, I am actively looking for deals that a seller has to get rid of. And if that deal works for me, I know I'm getting a discount today. And I know that in two, three years, 
when the market is back in some form or fashion, because we are in a cycle, you know, that cycle is going to come back. Um, and I've never seen a recession last longer than two years before the market starts coming back and, and starts getting heated up again. Um, but, uh, um, you know, if I'm buying deals today, I know in two, three years, even if I don't do anything to the property, I'm probably going to make out all right in, in 2025, 2026. That's, that's, that's just a reality. And, uh, you know, thank, thankfully, we don't buy, you know, 2022 bills where we're only waiting for, you know, market appreciation to take the property to the next level. We're doing value add strategies. So regardless of what the market's doing, we're going to go in, renovate the asset, renovate the property so that we can increase the cash flow. And if the market's back in 25, 26, we'll sell it. If not, we'll refinance and hold it for a longer period of time. So... I think anytime is a good time to buy. You just want to make sure you're not becoming too aggressive on your underwriting methodology. Yeah, and I think that, like, so you guys, if you look at deals that are in your portfolio versus new deals that you're looking at, well, mm -hmm. deals in the portfolio, nobody could have known that the Fed was going to raise rates that fast, right. that quickly in that short period mm -hmm. of time. But we're there now. So, yeah. you know, you're, you have that information. So you're underwriting right. to today's interest rates, you know, right. in today's market. And just as, you know, inflation could continue and rates could continue to go up, the opposite could happen too, where right. rates could drop. And that's what more people are saying that next year the rates will drop. Who knows what will happen? But right. if that was to happen, then that would be a benefit because that would increase the cash right. flow, you know? Um, right. So exactly. Um, in any event, um, what, anything else that we didn't talk about that you think that investors need to uh, pay attention to and consider, you know, I think that some investors are saying, well, I can get four or 5% in a <laughs> bank today. Yeah. Um, and so why am I going to do a multifamily deal? I've got all these multifamily deals where everybody's in cash flow problems. So, yeah, no, we've heard that too. Uh, I think the one thing that investors should, you know, be wary of is that four or 5% is not a consistent four or 5% for the next 10 years. Right now you're getting 4% or 5% through a money market account because the rates are at 5%. Tomorrow or next year or the year after, when the Fed starts decreasing the rates, your 5% is going to become 4%, 3%, 2%, and then finally go back to where it was a year ago. And, so, then, and then they um, call and say, I want to get into your deals again. <laughs> and exactly. Then, and then yeah. at that point, the basis is higher and all the deals. Right. And, you know, so, yeah. It's back to the market's too high. Right. Like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I'm not going to do it. So it's hard. Now, we've heard it before. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing is, you're not going to get any sort of, you know, appreciation on a treasury bond. Uh, you're going to get your 5% a year and they're going to get your money back at the end of the year. And that's it. Or at the or whenever the term expires. Well, when you're investing in multifamily or investing in a, in a sponsor, depending on the way they kind of structure their deals, you're getting that cash flow of 4 to 5% today. And then you're getting that profit at the end when you sell the deal. So that's that's significant portion of the you know the capital. There is risk involved. Obviously, it is an investment. You know, so you want to make sure you're make you are you know you're doing your due diligence on the property, on the on the sponsor, their track record, etc. But 
it's not an apples to apples comparison when you're looking at treasury bonds versus real estate investment. It's the same, you can make the same argument that, hey, what's what's stopping me from just taking all my money out of the stock market and putting into treasury bonds? Well, sure, this next month you're gonna get 5%, but if the Fed drops rates tomorrow, that 5% goes away and then you go back into the stocks and equity, but now you're coming in at a higher basis because all the investors just did the same thing. Right, you know that when the market dropped, People got scared and they took their money out, and then exactly. and then they, you know, they say it's the wall of worry, right? The stock market continues yep. to rise, <laughs> um, valuations, yep. and everybody's on the sidelines. But um, hey, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I appreciate the relationship. I appreciate being able to work with you guys. I think you guys have built a fantastic uh, machine, and. Um, you know, yeah. how can people reach out to you if they want to get to know you better and rise better? Yeah, no, uh, you know, uh, investors can go to rise40equity.com. Um, there's, you know, on there, there's a click, uh, you can click on a link to kind of set up a call with Zach, Robert, or myself. And then we can talk, you know, and per- we can talk personally, kind of uh, understand the investor and see the see what they're looking to invest in and, you know, potentially get them on our investor list so they can see our opportunities in the future. Um, but yeah, no, that's the, that's the best way to reach out to me. Or you can email me directly, bikron at rise40equity.com um, or find me on LinkedIn, you know, I'm happy to connect and kind of explain what Rise48 does. And if it's a good relationship, we can potentially, you know, work on a deal together later on. But, you know, it's great uh, having you as a partner, Darren, on on our deals. And we appreciate everything you do as well. So uh, I appreciate it. I mean, look, it's it's nice doing business with good guys that that are buttoned down in the business. So um, that's my my take, at least, you know, so um, keep it up. (laughs) Thank you so much. No, thanks so much, Darren. Appreciate it, man. Hey, listeners, until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at DarrenBatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.